G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Martin Niles, a special welcome along to 2020. Thank you, Neil. Good to be with you on this time in person. (laughs) Well, face to face, and we're often talking on the phone. Uh, The issues are intense, as they always are. And a wonderful opportunity today to have a little extra time to talk and an opportunity for listeners to participate in our conversation. So 1-800-316-316, if you'd like to be a part of this conversation today. Let's talk, first of all, about developments in Victoria, uh, Dan Andrews, uh, the challenges that are going on, an 8 o'clock curfew in the state of Victoria, Uh, heavy restrictions on public movement. Uh, We've begun to unpack these things before. Have you got any further developments, uh, thoughts on things that are happening, Martin? Yeah, look, I mean, it's it's concerning what's going on down there, and I don't think anybody begrudges um, the situation that, say, Dan Andrews is in or any of the political leaders. Uh, It's challenging, and they've got to make fast and serious decisions on the fly uh, with, uh, you know, minimum time to think about them. Uh, I suppose uh, my continuing thinking, however, is that uh, uh, the draconian measures are um, unbelievably strong. Uh, and are we trying to kill a gnat with a wrecking ball here is sort of uh, what I'm looking at. And I think this is a, a view that's coming out more and more uh, all around the world as we learn more and more about the virus and the coronavirus and how deadly it is uh, and uh, how it spreads and the impact that it has on different age groups. Uh, and, you know, we're seeing things like in countries that don't lock down a 99.95% plus uh, survival rate. Uh, if you're younger, if you're under 60-odd or 70-odd, it's a 99.99% survival rate. Uh, and you look at that and you think, well, if that's in a no-lockdown zone, uh, and those are in countries with similar population densities to our own country, like Sweden, um, I look at those things. Others are looking at those things and saying, are we destroying more than we're saving here? Because I suppose that's the thing. Uh, people sometimes forget that there's no cost-free way through this coronavirus. Uh, you know, whatever we do, people are either going to lose businesses, livelihoods, financial income, uh, mental health costs and all that, or we're going to have um, uh, s- some more people actually contract the virus. What are we going to do here? And the draconian measures are looking a little bit hard to sustain. When you talk about, you know, uh, using the sledgehammer to kill the gnat, uh, this is the interesting thing, I think, where we might understand why these sorts of decisions are being made because uh, when we hear of stories of young people who are going to parties, I mean, you know, who wants to stop young people having a good time at a party? But where there are people who are ignoring the uh, regulation that comes, which is the common sense thing to you know, socially distance, uh, to make sure you wash your hands, uh, to don't go out and, and have parties with your friends because uh, that's going to cause problems. When you've got a disobedience that happens uh, from young people, then you have this reaction that comes from the top that says, we've got to crack down on this. And then everybody's affected by those harsh laws. 
Well, that's exactly right. I think um, uh, there is a there is an issue where it's a bit like herding cats <laughs> to try and get people to obey strict rules. Um, but that's why, again, I say, well, maybe there is a better way. Maybe we can focus on those places where uh, the virus does have an impact. For example, aged care, and that's been a that's been a situation right across the world. Huge percentage of cases are coming out of nursing homes and aged care centres. You go to Sweden again, where they didn't lock down. They've expressed regret that they did not deal with their aged care situation. They said if they had dealt with that, uh, their death rate would have been so low uh, that it actually would have, you know, in the context of all the other kinds of deaths they had over the same period, it would have faded into its context. Uh, And so you wouldn't have had this one-eyed focus just on coronavirus. And so again, I say, well, you know, let's Let's ring fence our aged care centre homes. Let's get them sorted out. Uh, And then if a young person goes and has a party with another young person, fine, that's not helpful, but it's not a disaster. Um, And one of the problems we've got here is that the media is, is running this daily account of this is how many people have coronavirus. This is how many people are in intensive care from coronavirus. And they exaggerate it. I mean, even uh, a a usually fairly conservative media outlet the other day put a headline up that says, uh, young people fill Victorian ICUs. And I looked it up and there's three young people in intensive care in Victoria at the moment. Uh, And Victoria has well over 500 intensive care beds. And so that's just a lie. And I've seen quite a number of examples of that. I think I'm going to start sharing them on my social media. You get a one-eyed focus on this. And I think, well, hang on, if they also publish the number of people that are going bankrupt, if they also publish the number of suicides, which is higher at the moment by significantly, if they also publish the number of people phoning up for mental health support, if they also publish the number of phone calls to domestic violence help centres, if they also publish the number of businesses going into voluntary administration, the number of people who have lost their jobs on a 24-hour cycle, suddenly you'd see a context. And coronavirus would be one of many factors in a broad context, and it wouldn't alarm us and cause us to be so fearful. I do note that there's been more money that is being ploughed into mental health, especially in Victoria, because of some of the statistics that have shown that mental health challenges are on the rise. People who are self-harming and the breakdown of age groups and a younger age group actually being more deeply affected with some mental health issues. So there is a certain sense in which the government is concerned about that, but that's got its whole own... Uh, its own life to live, uh, the mental health problems, the self-harm, the suicides, those are the sorts of things that are ramifications from making these sorts of uh, heavy laws. Oh, without a doubt. And it's interesting to note this. I mean, sometimes people dismiss these things, but it's not to be dismissed because these are precisely the reasons why people encounter mental health challenges, whether it be their finances, whether it be fear uh, and unjustified overblown fear, Uh, or whether it be um, uh, the the atmosphere that's present in Victoria with the lockdowns. I mean, you think of somebody, for example, who's recovering from an addiction, and there's a lot of people who are sadly in that category. Suddenly, they're locked into their homes uh, alone in a lot of cases, and they're not allowed out except for a maximum of one hour a day to exercise, and they're not allowed out in the evenings at all because of the curfew. That poor person is in very serious trouble. Um, And that's a large number of people. And there's only so much that money, you know, the government can only do one thing, and that is throw money at a problem. And there's only so much that money can do uh, once you've got the issue actually out in the community. And so as we were saying before, Neil, um, there's no cost-free way to approach this. Uh, And my concern, and I'm far from alone in this, is that the costs we're racking up for ourselves are greater than the costs we're avoiding at the moment. And 
Daniel Andrews's lockdowns are very, very severe. I mean, a curfew in a free country and no scientific evidence presented as to why a curfew is necessary. Um, that's another interesting point. There's, I mean, I'd like just a one-pager that sort of says, you know, here's what we're doing uh, and, and here's why, and they've done very little of that. Uh, and so we're raising questions, and I feel as though we're not getting answers. Curfews, heavy fines in a nation that is used to having its freedoms, uh, and that's why that's a challenge for us. And there may well be some good motivations for actually doing that because we're wanting to protect the health of individuals. But when there is like an open-endedness to this idea of having the curfews and even the risk of increasing the fines for not wearing a face mask when you're out in the open wandering in the park, uh, those are the sorts of things that might be concerning for us if we're talking freedoms, Martin. I think that's exactly right. And I think that you you, you allude to something important, which is that uh, I think politicians are well-intentioned on the whole in this. There are those who quite like the idea of control, Uh, but I think on the whole they've seen a problem and they're trying to resolve the problem. Uh, At the moment, however, what it's looking like is more and more draconian uh, crackdown on the problem because that's the political way. The political way at the moment is keep people safe. I mean, we're sitting here in Queensland at the moment. I got in here before the border closed. The border's now shut. Uh, Now, Canberra, where I'm from, has been declared a hotspot. Now, we've had one case in the last eight-odd weeks, uh, and that case was a person who came up from Victoria. That's crazy. That's been declared a hotspot by the Queensland government. And I look at that, and I think it's, it's really political, because at the moment, if you're a politician, you will get big dividends in the polls if you keep people safe. Then you look at um, Daniel Andrews, who's kind of in the other basket (laughs) where he's made some blunders uh, or, you know, the virus has got out because people are a bit like herding cats. uh, And um, he's now suffering. He's paying the price politically big time. Uh, And so it really determines the future of a political leader, whether coronavirus is or is not in your area. And so there's a huge political incentive for them to be, you know, draconian, for them to go as hard as possible, even when there's no evidence that going this hard is a good idea. And so I've had some people say that when I raise these concerns, it's unhelpful. And it's not honouring to leaders. And I sit here and I go, no, no, it's precisely helpful because it's really important that we keep a number of perspectives rolling around in the community because that way the politicians can, what's politically advantageous can change. People can sit back after a while and go, this is a bit too harsh. We're looking around the world. Uh, It's not as serious as you're saying. There's more balanced ways we can protect our elderly and crack that code of how to protect nursing homes. And the rest of us are actually going to get through this much better without these restrictions. Uh, that's a great narrative to have if it's true, because then it can change what is politically, uh, what is the most politically expedient thing to do. The politicians can get the sense that people want a bit more freedom and they will change because politicians, believe it or not, act politically. So unless you stand up and say, no, we expect our freedoms, then politicians are not going to listen. They're actually listening to the loudest voices. Those loudest voices right now are saying, protect the elderly at all costs. Uh, Whereas uh, what you're saying is, in a targeted way, absolutely protect the elderly. But at the same time, you've got to be able to create some freedoms. And when we talk about politicians and power, uh, this idea of harsh restrictions actually in it it it, uh, it instills an extra power level and we've got some elections coming up you know when we talk about targeted 
protections. We've had this in the state of Queensland for quite some time where we had uh, a hard border closure and then we had uh, an opening of the border and then there's a hard border closure again. Western Australia has a hard border closure. Uh, What are your thoughts about this idea of targeted, politically motivated uh, ways that, uh, that leaders are actually cementing their own power? Yeah, I think that there is uh, politics. It's interesting. The Queensland government, for example, they actually hired a political consultant uh, to to give them a report and talk to them about their border closure policy. And I sit there and I think to myself, well, that's interesting. They're looking at the politics of the issue. And again, I said, remember, politicians, and look, they're trapped in this paradigm to some degree. Their every day is politics, politics, politics. You put a suggestion to a politician, they'll come back to you and say, is that politically feasible? Uh, And so sometimes you actually get the truth of the matter fade into the background and the politics of the matter come into the foreground. And the Queensland government has been speaking to political advisers about the border closure. Uh, they've not so much been speaking to health advisers about the border closure. So I think a lot of these things are politically motivated. Now, I'm a Queenslander, and I know that Queenslanders are, uh, are Queenslanders first and, and Australians second. Uh, and, you know, we love the idea that we can cl- shut the border to the to the Mexicans down south and we can keep them out and all this kind of thing. Like, that's that, that, that just plays to Queen. Queensland's psyche, and it's, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, but, you know, is it really necessary, especially when you've got, say, Canberra declared a hotspot where there are no cases? Uh, and so things like that make me think, yeah, a lot of politics in this. And so we need to speak up for truth so that what's political changes. Let's bring into this conversation the Christian church. And I note that in the United States, there are some churches that are beginning to say, all of these harsh lockdowns, we're going to reject those because uh, we first see our loyalty to Almighty God and secondarily we'll think about what the state might tell us to do. Now this hasn't really hit our shores yet uh, that I can see but no doubt there are some places where churches have been forced to close and I'm thinking probably in some country areas in Victoria and they're saying with no no coronavirus here and yet we've got to close our church uh, that some people will actually want to be a little bit civilly disobedient and maybe push some boundaries here. Any thoughts on how that might develop in Australia in the coming times? Yeah, it's a good question, Neil, and I've been thinking about this. I've looked at the American churches that have taken a principled decision to say, look, we're not going to stay closed indefinitely because the order from the the governor, so for example, you can look at Grace Community Church in California, uh, and they said the governor said to us, you know, you're locked down, you're shut indefinitely, and there was no uh, stated goal for the lockdowns, there was no hope of reopening, um, and so they said, look, this is not right because the scriptures tell us clearly not to forsake the gathering together of yourselves, there is something really important about Christian fellowship in person, uh, and we can't have this indefinite edict. We believe that our obedience to Christ means that we have to now open under these circumstances, and they went ahead and did that. They've been widely praised and they've been widely condemned. Uh, I am going to sit on the fence, (laughs) which I don't usually do. And the reason I'm doing it is because I actually am starting to wonder whether it's a question of conscience. There is a, a criticism against them that says that they're bringing the church into disrepute in the eye of the public. I actually think in America that is not the case. I think in America there is a very, very, very large groundswell of people who are saying, look, 
we think we should be able to get on with life if we want to. That's because in the psyche of Americans, freedoms are so heavily baked into them uh, that they are very, very keen to just get ahead and go on with life. And so I think that the criticism on that basis against the American churches is wrong. I actually think that in the eyes of the public, they're probably not. Uh, bringing the name of God into Christ into disrepute or, or Christians. Um, but whether or not it's done in America, I think, is possibly becoming a question of conscience. And I think it's particularly strong uh, in places where there are huge, uh, dis- um, um, what's the word, inconsistencies between uh, the regulations. So in Nevada, for example, gaming venues and all this were open and churches were shut. And so you've got pastors saying, hang on, this is quite unjust, uh, and are we now uh, in a situation where uh, our obedience to Christ demands that we meet because the government is being inconsistent? Uh, I think this is a serious issue. I'm not sure that Australia is there yet because the, the situation here is not that serious. Um, but uh, you make the point about Victorians. Maybe they are starting to think that way. I'd say that we need to be very careful about our public reputation in this, uh, and I think in Australia it's more at risk. Uh, and we also need to be very careful that we believe that when we do it, uh, that if we did it, we would be um, doing it because we think the government is asking us to do something which we cannot do before God in good conscience. Um, I personally probably don't think we're there yet, but I'm not going to condemn the American churches that have done it. Inconsistencies may be an issue. Uh, what you might be thinking through in your own community and with your own local church. Well, I'm asking a question today on our Facebook poll, do you think Christian leaders should courageously confront anti-Christian laws or remain quiet? Well, there's an awful lot of topics we can still talk through which you can apply this sort of thought to, but uh, do respond on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash vision radio. And while you're on Facebook, you can check into our live stream on Facebook today, facebook.com forward slash vision radio. Our special guest in the studio is Martin Isles. This is 2020 with Neil Johnson, helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Our special guest this hour is Martin Isles. Martin's the Managing Director of the Australian Christian Lobby. We're talking through some issues today around Australia's freedoms. What's at risk? What's being lost? Why Christian leaders perhaps need to be more courageous in the way that they stand uh, for those things that do, in fact, bring our freedoms, uh, more courageous, perhaps, in the way that they are teaching a biblical idea of freedom. Uh, let's talk through some issues here, Martin, around Israel Folau, because uh, we know that from the news headlines, he's refused to take a knee on Black Lives Matter. That was about a week ago, and no doubt that'll happen almost every time he plays, uh, where he'll be standing and everybody else around him will be taking a knee and bowing to this idea of Black Lives Matter. And, of course, some Christians have made comparisons to Israel Folau and the story of Daniel and his couple of mates. What are your thoughts on Israel Folau? Yeah, look, I think Israel did the only thing that a Christian can do because there was a great big Black Lives Matter um, banner in the background. Uh, the taking of the knee was an explicit endorsement of Black Lives Matter as a movement. It wasn't merely saying, look, I'm against racism. It was the Black Lives Matter movement. And, you know, I've spoken so extensively on this now, and it's become very well known that Black Lives Matter is an avowedly Marxist political movement. Uh, and the one of the founders is, is, is on tape saying that. Uh, and she's not only saying that, but she's making the point that the phrase Black Lives Matter does not simply mean that 
Black Lives Matter. It is a phrase that endorses the entire political infrastructure of the Marxist political movement that is Black Lives Matter. She actually says it's a statement of politics. What politics? Well, revolutionary politics. Uh, As the Communist Manifesto says, the overthrow of all existing social conditions. And you see that because Black Lives Matter riot in the streets. They burn down churches. Uh, They were burning Bibles in Portland the other day. Uh, They loot stores and they break and they destroy. Um, Why? Well, because they say that, you know, there's there's a... um, uh, you know, almost uh, there's, there's this out of control, uh, racist policing uh, narrative. But of course, you throw up the statistics on policing and interactions with the public and incidences of violence by race and killings by race. And all of a sudden you see that this narrative is not just overblown. It's false. But it's one that's been built up over so many years that it's very convincing. Um, and, you know, that's not to say there's no such thing as racism. There is and it's wicked. Uh, and, you know, we should always stand against it when we see it. And if anyone can point out instances of racism, everyone who sees it should get involved to stop it. But what Black Lives Matter is preaching and standing for is false. And so I think Israel Folau did the only thing he could do, because Marxism is ultimately at its core very anti-Christian, very anti-God, very anti-Christ. It doesn't have, for example, a doctrine of forgiveness at all, and in that sense it's anti-Christ. Um, and also it, it believes that God's good things are oppressive, Things like gender assigned at birth, as they would say, so your birth sex, or things like marriage, or or family, they call it the motherhood penalty, or they call marriage a patriarchy, or, you know, work itself. They say that the worker is someone who's exploited and oppressed, but that's one of God's good things in creation, and you see how that it is quite a nasty ideology. So I think what Israel Folau has done is good, and what he's shown, I think, is a kind of Christian courage that is very rare these days. And he may be criticized for being too bold, but I don't think we can be too bold if we're doing it for the right reason. If we're doing it as, uh, you know, the the person said, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, you know, Daniel, uh, as they did for the right reason to stand for what is good. Uh, Even when the people around them might not fully understand it, it's still a good thing to do because we're never going to push back or raise a witness for what is right if no one is standing for what is right. And as you say, a couple of teammates there happy to stand alongside Israel Folau and not take a knee. Uh, is that likely, do you think, because it's taking a alternative approach to taking a knee, that that's something that, you know, that young Christians who are looking for role models and wondering who is standing up against this stuff, uh, do I have to take a knee to Marxism too? And uh, Israel Folau all of a sudden becomes, you know, a hero once again. Mm. Yeah, I think it was Billy Graham who said, when one, courage- when one brave man takes a stand, the spines of others are often stiffened. Uh, and it's true, courage is contagious. But you need the person to be courageous so that others might look at them and say, I could do that too. And that's so often the case. And um, I did a little piece on this on my, on my vlog uh, the other day, which was all about um, connecting what Israel did to the teachings of Jesus, which was that we're the salt of the earth. And Jesus says there, you know, when you're when you're when your Christian character is is at is at work in the world, uh, you act like salt. You stop decay. You stop the advance of evil. You stop uh, bad influences from 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 wrecking things and and and, and having their way. Um, but he says, you know, if the salt's lost its taste, it's not good for anything except to be chucked out and, and walked on. Uh, and if salt loses its taste, you ask you a question: Well, how does that even happen? And the simple answer is, it loses its taste when the moisture gets into it. And that means that the environment that it's been sitting in compromises it. And when I look at someone like Israel, I see the pressure that's on him. 
and there's a lot of pressure. And I see the pressure that's on all sports people to do this thing. And so all of a sudden, the environment that they're in is pressuring them to compromise. It's like the salt. It could lose its taste. But what Israel did was say, no, I won't compromise. I'll stand. And it's interesting. Then the salt starts to, to work because there's a symbol there of somebody who says, no, I will stand against the advance of this bad thing, this movement, which is antichrist, and deceptively so, because it presents itself so nicely and so well. And suddenly you've got a couple of other teammates that go, yeah, all right, if he's doing it, I'll do it too. And the salt works. And there's a false idea out there that by compromising, we can win people. That's not the teaching of the Bible, and that's not what works in practice. It's actually by being bold that we can actually be a a, a light in the world and we can actually win people. Let me venture to connect what might be happening with this idea of standing against Black Lives Matter and what we were talking about a little earlier, uh, where churches in the U.S. are beginning to say, we're not going to bow to everything the state tells us to do. We're not going to close. We're not going to minimize our effort in our communities. Uh, Connection here, I wonder whether you've got any thoughts uh, that it's not just coronavirus that churches are getting a little concerned about and the way that governments are oppressing them, uh, that it actually is a bigger agenda than that and that there are extra things that are happening in a lot of different dimensions that perhaps we ought not to write off some of those Christian leaders uh, in the efforts that they're making now to say, hey, something's wrong here. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the reasons I've said I'm, I'm not prepared to condemn uh, those Christian leaders that have said, you know, we will meet despite the coronavirus restrictions. I understand why some people criticize them, but I'm not prepared to condemn them because I am wondering whether actually that what they're doing is very prescient. Uh, what they're doing is actually quite discerning of what's the future holds because there's in America in particular they're watching the the riots in their streets they're watching the rise and rise of this this movement which has frankly totalitarian instincts and um, revolutionary instincts uh, and destructive instincts uh, and they're watching that movement as it plays out in a very anti-Christian way uh, and they see that they're burning churches down they see that in Portland there were riots where they were burning Bibles uh, and they see that. And they see these draconian restrictions coming in the form of coronavirus. And there are some states around America where the disparities between restrictions on, say, gaming venues and and, and, and adult entertainment stuff and all that, like Nevada, are, are far less draconian than the restrictions on churches. And so you see them sitting there going, well, hang on, are we on a really bad path here? And there's a U.S. presidential election coming up at the end of the year, and they're finding a lot of their social media content is being censored uh, in the lead up to that. And there's a huge spike in censorship on the major social media platforms. Uh, You know, we've all, a lot of us have seen it uh, firsthand, um, and that's because they're they're shaping the narrative before the election. And they know that if if, um, Joe Biden was to win the election, there's a lot of people who are just frankly anti-Christian anti-religious. And I think that's why a lot of Christians support Trump, by the way, not because they think he's a, he's a wonderful saint, but because they can see the anti-religion and anti-Christian tendencies on the other side. And they saw it with Hillary a few years ago and, 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 and wanted to avoid it. So I think there's a, whole, there's a whole range of issues here that these churches are looking at. And they're saying, if we don't take a stand now and say, no, actually to meet together as God's people and to worship God is the most important thing we can do right now, and it does say in Scripture not to forsake gathering together. And so we're going to go ahead and we're going to do it. I'm not going to point the finger at them and say that's wrong because I'm not sure that it is. I think they could turn out to be very wise.
Okay, anti-Christian, anti-religious forces. Now, this really is where it starts to heat up when we say, where do Christians stand in all of this? Because when the threat becomes much more obvious, then we say, what are we supposed to do? We're relying on our Christian leaders to be able to have a position, to have thought through the issues, and even to have strategized a way ahead. And it comes back to this question that we're talking about today, and uh, I introduced in our our, the beginning of our segment this idea of uh, talking about the perils of making a stand for truth. Because when you've got even in nations that we think of as free in the U.S., uh, burning Bibles, uh, a movement against Christianity. Uh, shutting down churches, even attacking churches. And there was just a few weeks ago the burning of churches. And it's like churches are under attack because the Bible itself actually has an expression of truth that won't change. And if you are in the modern or postmodern mindset that that truth needs to be dealt with and set aside, then somehow or other we could either remain quiet, remain silent and let uh, people be steamrolled, or someone's got to stand up and say, there is truth, and we can stand by this. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And um, uh, there is always a cost to doing that, um, but it needs to be done. Uh, and uh, the question is, who's prepared to incur the cost <laughs> of doing it? Uh, and I think, again, I'll go back to the fact that there is a there is a popular idea out there that by doing it, what you're doing is alienating people, you're bringing disrepute on the church, uh, and all this kind of thing. But if you're standing up for the right thing, for the right reason, with the right motive in your heart, uh, I, I dispute that heavily. And I think that, again, the words of Jesus are very instructive. I talked about the bit where he talks about being salt and what that means. But in exactly the same context around those words, he points something out. He says, if you are this person, two things will happen. He says, firstly, you'll be persecuted. And that's where he says, blessed are the persecuted for righteousness sake. So for doing the right thing, you can be persecuted or you can be reviled, as he says, that he's insulted and people will say evil against you. So that's one thing that can happen to you in that context. And so expect it, right? That doesn't mean that your witness for Jesus is under threat. It doesn't mean that you are bringing the name of Christ into disrepute, and it doesn't mean you've done the wrong thing. In fact, it could be precisely the opposite, because Jesus finishes out that section by pointing out what else will happen in those moments. He says, people will see your good works, and they will glorify your Father in heaven. And you go, ah, so you get both. And, uh, you know, it, it just resonates so much with the work that I do, where I find myself being thrown into these tricky situations where you've got, you think if we mentioned Israel Folau before, and that was obviously one of the big things last year, tricky situation where you're thrown in and somebody shoves a mic in your face and they say, ha, what are you going to say for this fella? And you speak up and you tell the truth and you think, man, I'm going to cop it for this. I'm just going to cop it on every side. And in some ways you do. But I tell you what, so much good is done. And you actually start to, by God's grace, hear the stories of people who were impacted for good, uh, people whose faith was uh, actually enriched by that. And, and, and those stories have come through thick and fast ever since. So good happens as well as the heat of that sort of animosity. And so I say to people, you know, let's get some perspective here. You know, what kind of world are we in? We're in a world where we can expect to, to, to take the heat when we stand for truth. But also God actually does use the boldness of people, the courage of people to do good. That's a really important perspective to have in times like these. We're taking calls on 1-800-316-316. Let's hear from Marguerite in Rockhampton in Queensland. Hi, Marguerite. Welcome. Good morning. How are you? I just want to say thank you for this platform and um, 
for Australians and all the people of the world, really, because Satan's main attack and armour is guilt, fear and doubt to speak out and to speak up. And Australia was founded upon the Christian belief and now we're all criticised because we want to speak up. Israel Folau has done this by himself and other people have looked behind it and even Americans are seeing it as a political attack. And I can't um, say enough because I've, been, I've written letters even to um, the government to say change our national anthem. If we are a Christian nation, not change the national anthem, but to bring in verse 3 of our national anthem, which has the word God in it, where we can praise God and show people that we are a Christian nation. We're not recognising that now. Marguerite, should it good hearing your thoughts here. Let's get a thought or two from Martin. And uh, Martin, what are your thoughts for Marguerite? I think Marguerite made a really good point about fear. Um, and how that fear is a, is really is a tool in the arsenal of, you know, she said the devil. Uh, it's also a tool in the arsenal of a, of a number of political movements that are going on right now. And I guess that's what starts to make me a little sceptical of the coronavirus alarmism. Not the fact that coronavirus is serious. I'm not saying it isn't. But the alarmism, the fact that, you know, you almost have someone in your face saying, be afraid, be afraid, be scared, stay home, and all and it's a common theme I see. I've just written a little booklet, which we're sending out to our donors on um, cultural Marxism, which is sort of trying to, uh, a, a phrase which is trying to understand what is the ideology that's driving a lot of modern political movements, whether that be Black Lives Matter, whether that be uh, Extinction Rebellion, as we saw it not that long ago, or School Strike for Climate, or whether that be Safe Schools. Um, you know, that was invented by Ros Ward, who is... A Marxist. She runs a podcast called Red Flag Radio. She's a keynote speaker at the annual Marxism conference this year. You know, it's pretty obvious. It's not me saying this. These people are saying it. Uh, and I look at all of these movements and I think actually where they begin is fear. And they begin by saying, for example, in the case of Extinction Rebellion, the world is going to burn and it's going to be destroyed by a climate catastrophe very, very soon. And that's what Greta Thunberg said. That's what others say in this space. And it makes people alarmed and afraid, and it stokes them to emotional involvement and activism. Um, and it's the same around others as well. Um, you know, even the Black Lives Matter thing, it does put fear into the hearts of, of, of people of color. It says, you know, the police, and I actually say this, the police are killing us. Uh, the police are perpetuating so much violence upon us that we ought to be in fear of our lives. And this is the language, actually, of the founders, and I've read it. Uh, and again, that's an incredible amount of fear, which is which is unfounded. Uh, you know, uh, police are actually there to protect us, and most of them are like you and I. They're, they don't, they're not racists. <laughs> they're, they're out there to protect people no matter who they are, and they don't see colour, they see a person. Uh, and... This fear-based stuff is everywhere at the moment, and I'm, I'm concerned that people are very afraid, uh, and therefore they are accepting of the next phase of a lot of these movements, which is, okay, we're going to start to control you, and we're going to start to tell you how to think, and we're going to start to... That all leads in a very nasty direction, 
depending who's doing it, but the people who are pushing this, are, 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 they're, not, they're not Christians, let's put it that way. Well, thank you so much to Marguerite. And Marguerite did mention something about a third verse of our national anthem, which mentions God. Uh, from what I understand there, and I don't have the detail, you might uh, know some more detail on this, Martin, but as I understand it, that third verse that has a godliness about it actually isn't an official third verse, but then perhaps it could become an official third verse. Uh, any thoughts just very briefly for Marguerite on that? Oh yeah, one of the thing. One of the things I've always, uh, ever since I was a kid, I've wondered why God isn't in our national anthem because he's in a lot of other Western countries' national anthems. Yes. He's in our constitution, and he's not. Maybe it could become an official uh, third verse, but I, I, I understand as well, Neil, that it's it's a later edition. Marguerite, thank you so much for your call. Our talkback line open one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. Let's take some more calls. Anne is in Labrador in Queensland. Hi, yeah. Anne. Welcome. Yeah, I just want to um, uh, talk about the authorities that he was talking about the first very first moment. I've got um, two. I've got two things that I have: uh, um, uh, uh, Hebrew uh, uh, Romans thirteen, and it says, "Let every soul be subject to the government authority, for there is no authority except God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists." The authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. And good thoughts, Romans chapter 13. Martin, your thoughts for Anne. Yeah, and that's also, uh, that's exactly why I'm not out there encouraging uh, Christians in this country uh, to take a stand against the authorities, because I think we need to take that very, very seriously because it was written to Christians who were living under Roman rule in the Roman Empire, uh, and so it would have hit them pretty hard. <laughs> and I think we've got to take the, 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 the clarity of that very seriously. The exception in, the, in Scripture to that rule is found in the book of Acts. I think it's Acts 4, uh, and it's where the disciples are hauled up to the Sanhedrin, and they're told to stop speaking in the name of Jesus. Uh, and they leave, and they say, well, we must obey God rather than men. And so the, the issue there was, okay, we've been asked to do something which we can see is clearly in direct contradiction to a command of God. Therefore, we must obey God. Now, until that happens, we obey the governing authorities because God has put them there and asked us to honor them in more than not just Romans 13, but also in First Peter 2. Uh, and so we take it seriously. The question arising in America is, at what point are we being asked to disobey God by not meeting as a church? Uh, I'm not sure that's totally clear. So it's a slight, I think initially to meet online is fine. But there comes a point where you are getting asked to do a bit much. Uh, I think Honour the governing authorities until you're absolutely sure uh, that you can't do it anymore. And no doubt there's nothing that says you can't debate what the authorities are doing mm, and true. wonder as a Christian as to whether that is right. And thank you so much for your call. Taking calls, 1-800-316-316. Let's hear from David in Perth, WA. Hi, David. Yeah, g'day. Um, I'd just like to talk to you about two points, if I may. Uh, the first point is I'd like to mention about the Magna Carta, which is currently going under restoration, uh, restoration work in the Parliament. We've got one of the only copies uh, that were written, um, actually owned by the Australian government. Perhaps uh, he might be able to give us a bit more enlightenment about that, because that's a very, very important document about our Christian freedoms um, and saying that uh, the right of kings is under God and not under whoever is in power, and that is a carry-on uh, to the Westminster system. Um, so 
they cannot actually write the Magna Carta out of any constitution or un under any parliament. Um, it has no right to be written out. And also the basic structure of the Westminster system, which we've inherited from Britain, uh, was, up until the early 900s, was still uh, referred back to the Bible, even going into the court, they would look at the the uh, Bible as the reference point for, for laws. David, good uh, thoughts there. Uh, let's just uh, let Martin have a say here. Uh, Martin, uh, important uh, understanding about the Magna Carta, and uh, really that's a part of Australia's Christian history too. What are your thoughts for David? Yeah, look, the Magna Carta was the beginning of um, you know a long trend towards more and more freedoms. Uh, and, of course, the Magna Carta was uh, there to entrench. One principle it entrenched was the idea that, effectively, the government is not God. Uh, and that goes back to what the previous caller said, which is we obey the government, but not when the government tries to be God. Uh, and uh, those are two things, and Christians are to honour God and the government until they can't, uh, and then they have to honour God and that's that's a principle that you don't see in countries like China. You don't see that principle in Marxist countries. You don't didn't see it in the USSR. You don't see it in North Korea. And countries that don't that that enforce atheism as the state religion or try and enforce no religion, um, those are countries where there's no higher authority than the state. Uh, and I fear that in in the West, as we become more atheistic and as we give up on God more and more and more, uh, then we will reap the reward of that in a government that gets too big for its boots, a government that thinks that it is in control of everything and gives people no freedom to worship anything else. That never, ever ends well. And the Magna Carta is a very important reminder of that. An important reminder too, David, insofar as King John was very reluctant to give up that power and did so at the behest of the church leaders of the day who really, enabled in enabling the control of that power that was coming from King John, were only able to do that by saying that there is a higher power and that is the law right. of God. So Magna Carta, very important. David, thank you so much for your call. 1-800-316-316 and let's take another call. Betty is on the line from Kalgoorlie in WA. Hi, Betty. Good morning. Um, I want to talk about the truth. Sorry, say that again. And, um, I'm bringing about the truth, you say. The truth. To a, Good. The yep. Yes. Yeah, and I truly believe our Christian leaders need to stand and protect the truth if we believe in the truth. And if you do that, you'll be rejected, you'll be hated. Fear really grips on hearts of all Christians to speak the truth. But the truth is not just the gospel. The truth is a person, and his name is Jesus. And it's sadly, it's the same thing. Jesus' name is hated in public, so as the truth. It's an endangered species. You'll be hated, but if you love Jesus, you will stand for the truth, live for the truth, walk in the truth, speak the truth, fight the truth, and even die for the truth, because you love the person, Jesus. And that's all I want to say. Betty, love Even your when passion. I'm speaking, I'm cry I'm I'm scared in my heart. I'm fear creeps me. I'm shaking by saying this. Betty, well done. Thank you for calling through. Martin, your thoughts for Betty? Yeah, look, I think um uh the the, the, the 
well, firstly, I say, don't be afraid because the truth is a person and that person happens to be alive. Uh, and that person is revealed to us in Revelation chapter 1 as the ruler of the kings on the earth. And uh, there is no greater authority and there is no greater side to be on. Uh, and there is no greater, you know, Hebrews reveals that he prays for us, he intercedes for us, uh, he's leading us to glory that he has at the moment. You know, there's so much hope to have as Christians, and uh, sometimes we can look at the way the world is changing, and we can we can get really downcast and downhearted. Uh, I say to people, I said this to uh, actually Andrew Bolt <laughs> when he interviewed me, he says, you know, what do you think of the attack on Christians? And I said, well, Andrew, I said, I've read the book, I know how it ends, uh, and it ends well. And, uh, you know, we have a great deal of hope. And also the other side of that is it's not just a future hope, it's a present hope because the truth is alive and well, even if the authorities don't embrace it or even if there's people in power who are pushing against it. And when the truth is alive and well, God's work is always being done in the world. Even in the days of Habakkuk, when he said, I'm doing a work in your day, you wouldn't believe even if I told you when Habakkuk is saying, why is God silent? Where is God? And God says, no, no, no. I am at work. And, you know, I see a lot of evidence of that by God's grace in my job, um, particularly with the way he's reaching individuals all over the country still with truth. And many of us still have an opportunity to speak truth. So uh, God says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus said that. And I think we can have great confidence that we are on the best of sides and in the best of hands. Thank you so much, Betty, for your call. We'll take another call or two. Shelby is on the line. Hi, Shelby. Welcome along. Hey, yeah, Neil. How are you going? And Martin, Good. guys, hey, I Shelby. love what I love what you do, you do, Martin and Neil, bringing this um, onto the airs for the Australian Christians, mate. It, it is just so phenomenal. What Martin, every time Martin um, uh, talks about something on the truth of it, he's spot on and so on it for the Christian and political. You know, um, I do church and state, and honestly. They say, well, we shouldn't mix the two together. Well, I say we should um, in certain retrospects. And, and can I just say this? Look, Jesus, his mission is and is alive today. His mission on the cross was um, to be brave, to be courageous. Um, and he knew his mission and he went through with it without, um, you know, stepping aside from it. And eternity is that great mission for all of us. Now, there's going to be a lot of us that don't have it. Shelby, but, um, good thoughts yeah. you're making there. Let's pick up on what I think you were indicating, is this idea of church and state, and some people think they don't mix. Uh, I wonder if a quick response here from Martin. Um, well, here's the thing. I mean, um, so people say they don't mix, but uh, the reality is that if, if Jesus is Lord... Um, then his authority is over all things. It doesn't matter whether you're a state. It doesn't matter whether you're a family. It doesn't matter whether you're a, a company. It doesn't matter whether you're an individual. It doesn't, you know, that's the that's the view we have to have of things. And so whilst the church is not the state and the state is not the church, and they don't interfere with each other's business too much, but, you know, Jesus is Lord of all things. And so the truth about the world and God's truth applies to everyone, whether it be the state or anybody else, and it's important that we continue to speak truth. Because if we don't speak the truth to the state and get them shaped according to the truth, someone else will speak lies, and uh, that'll that'll end badly.
Someone needs to speak up for the truth. I'm going to have to put a line under the calls. Lots of people trying to get through. Thank you to everyone who was calling through the hour. Uh, we won't be continuing with Martin after the news, so won't be able to take those calls. We'll be moving into a different direction, talking about persecution in the African nation of Ethiopia. But Martin, uh, just quickly, uh, any big plans for Australian Christian Lobby in this next coming time? Is there some campaigns? I know there's some elections coming up that'll take some of your attention attention. Uh, what should people expect to hear from the Australian Christian Lobby in the weeks ahead? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Neil. I mean, there's two things. Firstly, there is grassroots. We're seeing tremendous success in people heeding the call to stand for truth. You know, we say that we make truth public. And when it comes to that, I've always believed very much that we're all in this together. Uh, and yes, I, by God's grace, get opportunities to speak truth in politics and the media. Uh, but, you know, I think there's many Australians who want the opportunity to do the same. And so through the grassroots movement, we have so many people putting their hand up to volunteer and so many people being trained, so many people getting involved. Uh, and we had a, a day of action last weekend where we had three campaigns at once. Uh, there was people who made phone calls to pray for people, people who made phone calls to patch them through to their actual senators to talk about religious freedom and people who put leaflets on pro-life matters into letterboxes all on one day. Uh, that kind of thing is very exciting to me. And I think that there's a time coming in the next over the next 12 months where we as a movement can be very, very influential for the truth. Well, it's been wonderful having you in the studio. Wonderful on a live stream opportunity too for those who've joined us on Facebook Live over this past hour and no doubt uh, you'll be able to watch this afresh a little later. We'll also have it on a podcast a little later today on the 2020 page at vision.org.au. But Martin Isles, always great getting your insights and uh, face-to-face in the studio. I know this won't be the last time. We'll look forward to the next opportunity. Uh, Big things that are coming up with some elections and of course all of these issues around our freedoms, they're not going away, just that no one else in mainstream media seems to be talking about them. Martin Isles, let me point people to the Australian Christian Lobby website, acl.org.au. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.